0: You are listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis, where we talk to some of the top thought leaders, business leaders, and marketers around the globe. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind. And now, let's get into it. I have a very special guest here with me today, David, the head of marketing at Fathom by Pearson. He will be going in and discussing with us his experience to date as a marketing head coming into a landscape where there was no marketing whatsoever. So I'm going to really go in and explore with him how that was, how he maneuvered that, how he built a team and what the last six to eight months has been like. And I want him to actually share some of his lessons so some of our founders can really get a lot out of understanding how a marketing person comes in and operates and also how a CMO like him coming into a really cool B2B SaaS product, how you can actually set up a marketing team to win. So I'm going to be going in and just having conversation about exactly how it all started, like what kind of landscape did he actually come into and what he's learned, what he would do different, all of the stuff that I think is super important when you're actually building a marketing team. So, David, welcome. And I'd love to get straight into it with you is tell me like, you know, sort of take me back to eight months ago when you started this new role and what was it like? Just lay out, the, um, you know, landscape for everyone listening on.
1: Sure. Well, thanks, Melanie, for having me on your podcast. Uh, great to be here. And uh, yeah, so in terms of sharing my sort of unique experience, uh, one thing that makes my, that made my um, uh, sort of entry on into my current role unique is that I entered the role at right after Fathom uh, by Pearson, formerly known as Fathom AI, was acquired by Pearson and became founded by Pearson. Um, So I joined the company right after that happened. In fact, during my interview process, that had already happened. Um, And so that's something that I had discussed uh, even before I started the role with the founders and and the executives in terms of, hey, uh, if I'm coming into this role as head of marketing, um, how does that play into the larger Pearson marketing team. Will I still have my own marketing show to run here, or will I just be a satellite marketing team off of, let's say, the the Pearson marketing team back in London, UK? Right. So, so right off the bat, I made sure that I had those discussions, and the founders assured me that no, that you know, Pearson is is really wants Fallon to to sort of um, lead the way, not only in with our product and our data science, but they're actually, they were actually wanted to look to us to lead the way on the marketing front as well. Even though Fathom didn't really have a marketing function up and running, uh, what's funny is Pearson thought we did <laughs> um, and, and they wanted us to lead the way. Um, and so that sounded very interesting to me in terms of here you have an M&A that just happened um, and you're coming in as, as, as basically market, marketing hire number one. And, and you're being empowered by the acquiring multi-billion dollar global corporation to, run, to still run your own marketing show. So, so that, was, that was quite unique.
0: Before coming into that, this role, where were you previously? Were you, were, you were from an agency um, land or what was your experience um, coming um, in?
1: Well, my, my sort of... Uh, Marketing specialty, you know, us us uh, heads of marketing, marketing directors of CMOs. We have to be generalists and we have to have a wide range of knowledge and, and capability, but we all really have our own sort of special area of marketing that we're particularly good at. Uh, my marketing specialization was product marketing. Uh, so I did product marketing for about five years uh, back in Canada, where I'm from. And that was also for a B2B uh, company. They did a bit of B2B. B2C, but it was mostly B2B. Um, uh, But coming into my current role, I came into it out of an MBA. Uh, So I just finished a two-year MBA at uh, MGSM here in Sydney. And uh, my favorite course during the MBA was Digital Strategy for Business Models, which was all about IoT and AI and Industrial Revolution, how business models are being transformed by digital transformation, how do you how do you how do you adapt your business model to the new digital world, uh, etc. So that was that was a really interesting course, and and um, and, uh, and that's also one of the reasons why I chose to go with uh, Fathom. Uh, but yeah, so I just came back came into the role uh, out of my MBA, and while I was doing my MBA, I worked part time. You're right, I worked part time at a marketing technology agency, and that was a that was a great role because that really built up my my capabilities.
0: What does a marketing technology agency mean exactly?
1: Well, the agency that I worked in, uh, we specialized in Marketo. Marketo is a marketing automation tool like HubSpot, but it's less sort of uh, click, drag and drop. Uh, It does require a lot more coding, a lot more technical expertise. Um, And usually marketing teams would outsource that technical expertise. To an agency, and so we were actually Australia's leading martech uh, martech agency specializing in marketo, oh, no. uh, which is now which is now owned by Adobe. Uh, what's interesting is is during my time at the martech agency, so I started there in January 2020, right before right before you know what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, now, when disaster stroke in, in March, business for marketing agencies pretty much dried up, and we weren't the only ones. Pretty much any marketing agency out there, uh, their business pretty much dried up. And pretty much, you know, went on pause mode. And so we took that opportunity to actually pivot a bit into event tech. We are already doing event tech as part of our marketing technology uh, offering, but it was a small part of what we did. Um, uh, but obviously with COVID and we predicted that, hey, this COVID thing is probably not going to go away. It's probably going to be around for a year or, or maybe longer. And sure enough, it unfortunately, it didn't, didn't end up being a, a couple of years. But we, did, we, we made a decision. We placed a bet on virtual events and we said, we're going to pivot. We're still going to do tech, but we're just going to specialize in event tech. But what that meant was that we had, to, we had no brand in event tech. Which means we have to build a brand. We have to build a reputation from scratch in event tech, and we pulled it off uh, in the year that I was there. And so that was that was a very great learning experience for me. Um, yeah, if you want to learn, if if you really want to uh, learn martech, go work at a martech. Go work at a martech for sure.
0: Yeah. So let's start with the story of here. You are you've come into Fathom. It's been acquired by Pearson, so now it's fathomed by Pearson. So you're looking around, there's you and only you, correct me if I'm wrong, in marketing.
1: Well, actually, it it wasn't entirely only me because I did have one teammate when I first joined. Uh, He was uh, our digital marketing manager, and he did some good work in terms of uh, building out our website, building out our HubSpot implementation. Uh, yes, it wasn't fully built out. It was a very basic and simple build, but you know, nevertheless, he did get it done, and he did have good capabilities. Problem was, when was when I joined, he fell ill, right? Right, uh, and then after a month, I joined. He had to leave due to health issues. Oh, wow. So, like, like on paper, I I was marketing higher. I wasn't marketing higher number one, but in practice, I was basically a one man team.
0: Wow. So, a lot of people listening on, you know, they are also maybe looking to hire their first real marketing hire or their second one and they've either been acquired or they've raised a certain amount of seed round and how would you advise them to know like you know how, when you're hiring right you did some, you actually came and pitched to the business saying this is what I'm going to do for you just can you please share what you did so when they come across people they know that's the quality hire and this is what people are doing to actually land Jobs And they can feel confident when hiring a head of marketing within their business. What was, you know, what, what was something that you kind of shared with your founders to show, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you?
1: Uh, sure. Well, I started off with the vision. Uh, so I had, a, I had a strategy session with one of our founders. So we have two founders. One is more on the product side. One is more on the commercial side. Uh, so the founder, who's more on the commercial side, he's the one that I work more closely with when it comes to marketing. And he ha- he actually has a very good understanding of marketing, he's very uh, marketing savvy uh, himself. He doesn't have experience as a marketing uh, leader, but he really understands it, and that was really great. And so I start off with sort of the vision in terms of long term: where do you want where where do you where do you want the Fathom business to be in five years from now, or or let's say three years from now. Uh, so, you know, five years from now, three years from now, and then where do you want the business to wind it from now? So I started off at the, the sort of the long-term vision and long-term strategy level, and I worked backwards. And I was like, okay, well, if you want to get there, for example, he wanted us to uh, expand in the U.S. market, right? Well, I was like, okay, if you want to expand in the U.S. market, you're going to need to build a team there. You're going to have to build certain of the marketing functions are gonna to need to be localized. Like for example, your field marketing, your event marketing, uh, some of your content perhaps needs to be localized. Um, and then what you would need to do here in APAC, here in headquarters, where we, are, where we have our data science team and our product team, and those are Fathom's two core competencies. Um, and both the data and the product are critical for marketing to be close to, because when it comes to content, the value of our content is our data insights. Uh, And then we we obviously need to be close to product for product marketing. Then what I recommended was, okay, well, here in headquarters, the the marketing functions that need to be close to data and product, they need to be here. So uh, we need product marketing here. Um, uh, uh, Definitely we need product marketing here. To start, our our initial content team should be based out of here because they're going to feed off the data science team. Um, But... um, but uh, my number one recommendation, though, is, uh, I made a bunch of recommendations, but my number one recommendation is, hey, if you want to scale, if you want to grow rapidly um, uh, over the next year and the next few years, we're going to have to build a marketing system that scales. In other words, we're going to have to build an automated marketing engine that really scales. And so, and so the way you do that, it, it, it's, you can't do that without hiring a marketing operations manager. So that was my number one recommendation was to immediately hire a marketing operations manager. Now, when it comes to content, our product team already had a content designer and also a uh, product (laughs) content writer. Um, Now they're under the product team, but they were willing to lend themselves to the marketing function. And they were also producing some pretty good, pretty good material for um, both, product but they were also willing to produce really good content for marketing as well so that wasn't a priority the priority for me was if we want to scale uh we have to hire that marketing operation so
0: are you suggesting this pre during the interview or once you've come in and you've had a look around the you know what's got the landscape like when did you actually give your high level recommendations it's hard to give recommendations without you know 30-day observations but were there recommendations you were giving in interview
1: um during the interview was more um it was sort of more at a very high level in terms of high level of marketing strategy you know marketing philosophy and um um and sort of just 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 very high level recommendations um but those hiring recommendations that I made, they actually came in once I started the role. So that was about 30 days in. It took me about 30 days to really get a grasp of the business and what they needed from a marketing, from a marketing side. Um, during the interview, it was more about, for example, one of the things I recommended was, uh, I during the interview, I tried to test uh, to see if there was compatibility in my marketing philosophy and the organization's marketing philosophy. So for example, I talked about uh, taking a movement marketing approach where not only do we want to create content, but we want to create a movement around a cause, a global cause that uh, a large audience around the world can relate to, right? And that resonated with the founder who I interviewed. I also recommend that we take a community strategy approach and that resonated. And I also recommend that, hey, we need to take a LinkedIn-led approach and that resonated and so on and so forth. So there's about six different things that I sort of probed for uh and all of them landed and there was a match and so 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 i did i did do a little bit of that during the interview but it was but in terms of making my concrete recommendations uh for sure i would first need to understand the business before, before i can do those so i did those about about a month in
0: so what is your major goal for fathom
1: my goal for fathom's marketing team well, because we're an AI company, and like I said earlier, our core capabilities are in AI and in data science, and I'm learning a lot from our AI talent, our AI engineers, in terms of what's possible in, in, in AI. Um, I see an opportunity for our marketing team to perhaps become the most AI-powered marketing team in the world, because we do have some amazing AI talent here. Right, so, um, so I'm, I don't know of any other uh, marketing leaders who are taking this approach um, because there aren't that many AI companies out there yet. But uh, if I am, uh, basically, I like to be one of the pioneers of an AI augmented uh, marketing team. And uh, and what I and what I can do as I go through this journey, you know, happy to share how it goes, the lessons that I've learned. Um, one thing I will mention for anybody who's worried that AI will replace headcount, uh, it won't. I've asked, I've asked for a headcount of twenty uh, this year, right? So right now we're a headcount of six. I've asked for us to be a headcount of twenty by the end of the year. So we're still hiring, right? Um, but what? AI allows us to do is, is allow us to do things more efficiently, faster at scale, at higher volume. It basically increases the output of our marketing team.
0: So you don't see it as a smaller marketing team. You see it as still a bigger marketing team, but you can just do way more volume than you were able to do before.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's a competitive advantage. It's not like, hey, we're going to replace our marketing team with AI and save, save money on headcount, because mm-hmm. that's not going to allow you to compete against your competitor's marketing team. And, let, and let's face it, even though all, 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 all of us marketing leaders, you know, we're all on the same board and we're all friends and we all try to help each other. We are actually, some of us, what, some of us are competing against each other, right? So when it comes to competing, and it's friendly competition, right? So when it comes to competing against, let's say your, your competitor company's marketing team, ultimately you're competing against their marketing team. Uh, if you if you cut your head count, replace it with AI, well, that doesn't give you a competitive advantage, right? But if you keep your head count and then augment it with AI, that gives you a massive competitive advantage, right? You can you can you can just ridiculously outcompete your 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 competitors' marketing team if you have that kind of that kind of added scale, added speed, added capacity.
0: And how do you see this all impacting agencies? as well as you know ai comes into it do you see them also having to adopt ai do you see you know how do you see the agency relationship with um working in the future
1: well to be honest with you i think i think perhaps um uh, earlier i said like like you either hire in house or you hire an agency and now you have this third option ai um to be honest, with you, I know you're you're in the agency world, but to be honest, with you, I see the demand for agencies perhaps decreasing mm. as AI and the marketing function matures. But most of the agencies that do that do tasks that are, let's say, that can be automated. But agencies that are more on the creative side, on the strategic side, those I think are not going to be replaced anytime soon. Right. So yes, I might have this AI copy dot AI and I can write amazing copy, but I need a strategic thought partner. To help me think through our strategy, and uh, our, and also to help to help to help me with uh, creative production. Right. So, um, so agencies, as long as they, as long as they have, have some creative and strategic capabilities, I think, I think they'll be fine. And I think agencies could agencies could, uh, cause the, the biggest cost for agencies is headcount, right? Uh, that's the biggest cost for agencies. So I think, I think agencies could, could benefit a lot from the, from AI augmentation in terms of, in terms of their business models. In fact, perhaps you could say, I actually haven't thought of thought of, yet yeah, because these are, these are like completely new questions. No one's no one's asked me before. I, I've never heard any, anyone ask these questions. Perhaps I could see a world where uh, where there are more agencies as a result of AI because <laughs> now if you're let's say let's say you're a marketing leader in-house and you want to start up your own agency, well if you have AI that can that can let's say write your copy and do your video editing, right? Um, you, you don't need to go and hire a team. So the the, the barrier to entry uh, when it comes to starting a marketing agency is, is, having, is having funding to go and hire a team. But now if you have AI that can do a lot of those functions for you, like one of the biggest costs for you might be video editing, right? If you have an AI that can do your video editing for you, well, the barrier to entry when it comes to starting your own marketing agency, has all of a sudden dropped. So I could see I could see a world where there are more marketing agencies and marketing freelancers.
0: Yeah, potentially. And I think, yeah, agency is going to be an interesting play to see how some agencies play. There's been agencies that have played now for so long just doing the same thing. And then there's newer agencies that are saying, no, we are here to play demand gen. Um, and they're charging for that demand gen, but they're really playing it seriously when someone is hiring agency, and I guess you've gone through that, and what's your recommendation when people are going, okay, A, do I hire agency? What do you think that you should look for? Is it the same as the interview you mentioned before? You know, with when when your founders were interviewing you and you're looking for likeness, like mindset, likeliness, is that what you think that founder or you know should be looking for when hiring agency or what should a marketer be looking for that they've got the same thoughts or they operate the same and how do you know that
1: uh yep uh yeah partly uh you want to make sure that you know that the way you think of marketing uh alliance otherwise there's gonna be conflict and friction if you're disagreeing all the time but you don't want them to exactly agree with everything that you say right like for example I remember when you and I first met uh, yes, there was a lot of commonality that we had in the way we think of LinkedIn marketing, uh, but we had some differences, right? Uh, and so, what I would be looking for is not only someone who thinks like I do, but someone who I can learn from. Because you're 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 the agency. You're supposed to be the expert. You're supposed to be you're supposed to have expertise and deeper understanding on this platform than I do, right? So, I do need an agency to have. bring uh to bring insights and and bring um and bring a different perspective um but but yeah but yeah fundamentally i would make sure that you and the if it's a small agency you're working where you're working with make sure you and the and the agency owner the head of the agency make sure you uh make sure that you gel together well that your 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 uh your thought process uh uh, uh, sort of uh, fits well and that you can communicate well and that you can be effective together.
0: How do you know, though, But they, if they are really good or not? Because some people, you know, come in and they promise you a lot and they yeah. say they're experts in yeah. everything. And, you know, even at the beginning, you don't know if I'm going to be good or bad or whatever. Like I'm telling yeah. you one thing. So you yeah. can even might play two agencies, you know, and yeah. to go – do you think that that's a good play looking back or, you know, what's your recommendation on how can you really know that, okay, this is it, or do you recommend if K, if you don't know, go with two, so you can do it. Cause you've kind of, you know, been through it. What's your thought and recommendation on that?
1: Well, first of all, look at social proof, (laughs) look at, look at the agency's track record and the social proof and the customer logos that they have on the website, right? That's number one. Um, that's probably, yeah, that's number one. Number two is um, in terms of, you know, are they gonna do a good job? Um, if let's say you're hiring a very uh, niche agency, like I did with you, right? LinkedIn, there aren't really, as far as I know, there aren't really that many uh, marketing agencies that specialize in LinkedIn, here. In, at least here in Australia. Um, one way you could tell if, if it's a newer agency, is uh, just back to back to um, the interaction with the the head of the agency um, look for passion uh, in the head of the agency so if the head of the agency is very passionate about getting you results then they probably will cool they'll they'll, they'll, they'll figure out a way to get you the results that you want but if it, if if, it, if the head of an agency really doesn't care right then even if they have the technical expertise and the track record to get you those results, they're not as motivated
0: and as passionate about getting you those results. And being like a startup, right? How with big agencies, there's really, really big agencies and they'll just treat you as another person. Like, you know, another, if you go or come. So how do you choose? Yeah, You can go with a really big agency, but sometimes you just feel like you're just another number. Is that something that is important for, you know, um, someone that is building a marketing team out or they are just starting, like, go with, what would you recommend there? Is it better to go with a really big agency because, you get, you know, they've got their processes in set, but you might not get as much love attention, but, or is it, and it's hard to find even a small agency that's going to be really good and resourced enough also. So how do you kind of, yeah. you know, choose at that point?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I would say if you're a scale-up or a startup, um, you need to move fast, and bigger agencies don't move as fast. For example, bigger agencies will take, like, if you hire a big LinkedIn Ads agency, they will take two months to set up, mm. right? uh, and then they will take another month, another two months for creative production. Yeah, right. So you got to wait almost half a year until you can get your LinkedIn Ads up and running. You don't have that kind of time in a startup or scale up. Right, so that's one thing to keep in mind. It, bigger agencies do have a longer process, and also bigger agencies are the way they work is more. Um, it, they just have a longer process in the way they work. Like they first, like they first, like doing. For example, they might do customer buyer journey mapping, persona mapping, website journey mapping, and all kinds of strategizing and right. Um, they might need two months, mu- like two months, just, just to get it set up. But again, you don't have that kind of time. Right. Um,
0: but then how do you know with a smaller one that, you know, that you're saying go for the passion? That's all you can really go on and then look at the testimonials, look at the results, um, because it's hard to find the boutique ones that are established enough and good enough as well. So that's why you sometimes go, okay, I'll go with this big, bigger agency, but then you're saying time becomes a problem.
1: Uh, yeah and well I mean if you're a startup or scale up you have a limited budget so you can't necessarily go with the big agency right so uh, if you're a startup or scale up one you can't afford the big agencies anyway two they're too slow for you so you kind of you kinda have to go with smaller more agile lower cost agencies uh, in terms of picking the best among those agencies yeah number one look for social proof uh, number two yeah just social proof track record and if that's not there then it Probably depends mostly on sort of your just your basically just a judgment call, basically, kind of like kind of like you bet, like when you're hiring a marketing team, you don't know if this candidate can do the job, right? But through the interview process, you can get a good estimate, a good idea of whether they will succeed in the job or not. So that's the approach you take is you basically interview. basically you're basically hiring someone right so the same hiring process that you would apply internally you apply to uh, an agency and and perhaps similarly it's not just you interviewing that head of the agency uh but uh, just like you would hire in-house, you would put that person through different people and get opinions from different people because wow. your opinion might be wrong, right? You, you might miss something or you, or you might you might be biased in one way or another, right? But so get multiple opinions. Um, uh, Treat it like hiring an in-house person, essentially.
0: Why did you so early on choose a LinkedIn-led strategy?
1: Yeah, uh, the reason for that is that in my martech tech agency experience that I just told you about, where we had to pivot from marketing technology to event tech and build a brand in under a year. Uh, uh, to achieve that, I actually achieved that through LinkedIn, through a LinkedIn approach, through a LinkedIn sort of founder brand, influencer brand approach, where you take the head of the company, the in that case, the agency owner, and use that profile to distribute educational and entertaining content. Uh, And not only use it to distribute content, but you you interact with the audience, Uh, you actively interact with the audience and build relationships Um, very strategically. So for example, what what we would do is we would connect with other influencers and build relationships with other influencers. So, So not only do we want to build relationships with our audience members, um, and that that takes that takes uh, that that's very resource intensive. That's sort of hand to hand. We're kind of doing brick by brick. Uh, but the the more effective strategy for us was connect with other influencers, build relationships with other influencers, co-produce content with them, um, involve them into your content so they can co-distribute uh, your content in front of their audience. Uh, that was that was one of our most effective strategies. So identify a list of the mo- the the influencers the influencers in the space and some and mostly up-and-coming influencers because if they're really high up and you're just starting they're not going to want to connect with you so you always want to connect you want you want to build uh connections sort of at the same level and slightly uh slightly one level above and sort of the social hierarchy of whatever of whatever space you're in uh and and that was very effective and then and then um, and then we kept building on, uh, on, on every level in terms of moving up to the next uh, level of that sort of influencer hierarchy to the point where six months in, we are being quoted and mentioned by um, this fellow named Julius Solaris. Uh, he's probably number one influencer in that space, in the event space. In fact, they call him the king of events, mm-hmm. right? So he's like the guy in that space and he was supporting our stuff.
0: That's amazing. And,
1: and, and, and engaging with us, yep. So, so I saw it work very effectively, and I'm like, well, if you guys are still, you guys are still, you guys here at Fathom are still very early on, you haven't really built brand awareness, you haven't really built uh, an, a, a presence, uh, a strong presence on LinkedIn yet, uh, or really on the, on the internet, you haven't really built a strong presence yet online. Uh, and. And because the success that I had, just you know, just out of the role that i that i that I out of that previous role, I was like, yeah, we we definitely we definitely need to do that here as well.
0: Do you think that the success you had also then there was less and less competition? You know, LinkedIn was still a new channel. so um or do you think that the competition is just as the same? since when you started that, like looking back, and I want to look back and reflect because you, um, how do you see it now, you know, compared to when you started building that influencer to now?
1: Yeah. What's interesting is uh, you're right. Uh, when I first started, uh, let's say in January, February, March of 2020, before COVID, it was amazing. Yeah. You would do a video and it would just go viral. Get like, we, we did this one video like in my second month there that got like 100,000 views. Yeah. And like 200 comments, uh, and just amazing engagement, right? So um, uh, yeah, 2020, you could post a video, it would do really well. You would post text, links, images. Whatever you posted would do really well, as long as it was you know good quality content. The format didn't really matter, right? Nowadays, unfortunately, the LinkedIn has adjusted their algorithm where some pieces of content don't work well. For example, links, external links. Uh, the algorithm will sort of penalize your posts if you use external links, because LinkedIn obviously wants to be on the platform. Back in 2020, was, it wasn't like that. You could include all the links you wanted to. So there was, there was less, sort of, uh, there was less uh, manipulation by the algorithm in, in 2020. Uh, and also, you're right, there was less competition. There were, there were, there were less voices. In fact, when we started and in, in when we looked to pivot into event tech, there were ex- pre-existing influencers but there were very few of them, so there was only one or two really active influencers on LinkedIn, and so there wasn't really any competition, right? And you know, when it comes to winning in in, in business in general, the, the best place to be is in a place where there's no competition, right? So, um, so yeah, you're right that that those are really good times in, in terms of in terms of in terms of LinkedIn. Well, I have noticed more recently that it's become a bit more challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah. You have to play more strong in content, maybe more volume than ever before as well. Um, It seems to be important. Um, I guess my question is that I want to put to you is when I asked Chris Walker when he was on my show a couple of, you know, um, shows ago, he said that one thing with a CMO, when they come in, he thinks that the first thing they should do is fix their website and then they should go in and do, anything else because then the messaging is clear now looking back in the way that you know you went about it what would you I guess change where you go you know what I maybe would do this so the next CMO that is listening to this and have just come into a position like you where would how would you you know um how would you advise them because I guess it's easy for people to say yes start with the website but you've also got this pressure to try and show that you're doing stuff and Sometimes websites take longer. So there's two thoughts on chain of thoughts where, you know, Chris is saying start there and that's a timeline, but you feel a pressure, of course, being a CMO coming and going, I need to show something that I've produced something, right? So looking back, what's your viewpoint and what's your, you know, take on how would you advise another CMO in your position?
1: Yeah, well, it's a a bit of a conundrum because, yes, coming in as the new marketing leader, the organization wants to see an impact quickly. You know, they want they do want to see some fresh new content. They do want to see a fresh new approach uh, right away. And if you go work on the website, it's going to take you a month or two at the earliest to actually have something to show for it. Um, what I would say is like when I joined our website, we had we had a very, very good looking website. I've had others tell me, hey, your website looks stunning. So it's a beautiful website. Um, problem with it is that our website was because we did not have a marketing function. Our website was put together by our product team, right? So by our product design team. In terms of design, the visual design and aesthetics it look it looked beautiful. Um, however, because it wasn't built by uh, marketers, it really wasn't uh, it really wasn't optimized and and written for conversion and you know for actual marketing that that actually generates pipeline right um uh so one probably one mistake i made is i looked at the website right and i thought to myself you know what we have a pretty good looking website i don't really need to do anything on the website i'm just going to go ahead and start generating traffic i'm going to go ahead and start uh a linkedin uh strategy uh, and implement implement that right away, and that was one of my focus areas when I first started, because that's something that I was very passionate about, and the founders during my interview were very interested in, in, in as well. Uh, and so were a few of the other leaders in the organization. That's one of the one of the first things I did because because I thought we had a very nice looking website. But looking back, um, I probably should have done a closer analysis of our of our website that the challenge is that Fathom, we have a very complex product, right? So being new to the organization, um, I, I did not have a deep enough understanding of the product to really be able to assess whether those product pages and solution pages on the website, whether they would convert. I did not yet fully understand the, persona, uh, the personas that we're selling to and the products well enough to make that assessment. So I did not do a deep enough assessment of it um, uh, I just looked at the website and thought to myself, hey, it looks good. I'm going to go ahead and start generating traffic to this website. In hindsight, I would have probably liked to do a deeper dive and audit of the website before I generated traffic. Uh, and if I had done that, I would have probably seen that, hey, these landing pages that, are, that, look, that look very nice, they're not, they're not written by marketers. They're written by product design people. They probably aren't that effective in terms of in terms of uh, a buyer journey uh, and then I would have probably put some more work on those, at least on those solution pages uh, uh, before starting Dimension.
0: So how long then should a founder, CEO, CMO actually be given in a B2B SaaS that's got a product complexity in there um, to give them the time to actually understand and implement and recommend a marketing strategy then? you know, um, what do you recommend that, you know, is it the first, give them the first 60 days to 90 days to just explore and understand the product? Like what sort of timeline should they be given before they give a recommendation of how they're going to go to market?
1: 60 to 90 uh, sounds nice, yeah. but in a startup or scale-up, it's probably, you don't have, you probably don't have sixty ninety 90 days to wait. You know? uh, so I would say in a scale-up startup environment, it would it probably a month would be, I think, reasonable. Um, for you to start making some strategic recommendations.
0: And I guess it's all about then being agile that, okay, you will you will have look backs in that and you'll have to re reassess stuff along the way because you're starting so early. So there's lots of learns and failures along the way, but as long as you keep readjusting and refitting that going, okay, I I, I didn't sort of, realized that was going to happen, but once you put marketing out there and you see the analytics, so you're kind of constantly learning and adjusting and being agile, I guess, in the process.
1: Yeah, if you're a marketing leader in a startup or a scale-up, uh, you will need to adopt the agile approach to the rest of the organization. At that we have a very agile-oriented uh, sort of culture. Uh, and so, yes, the uh, company founders, executives, they are they, – uh, I did set that expectation with them in terms of, hey, this this is an ongoing, uh, this is an evolving strategy. It's never set in stone. This is what I'm recommending right now, 30 days in, uh, two months from now, some of this might change as my understanding of the market evolves. But yeah, if you're at a startup or scale up, yeah, you're probably going to be running agile marketing.
0: Me and you've talked about this before, and it was a very interesting conversation about the marketing landscape and you know, how you see the marketing landscape changing. We're talking about agile. We're talking about, um, you know, as someone coming in and looking at that change, we just discussed a change earlier about how LinkedIn has changed and become competitive, but also marketing hires. And you're saying, you know, the first thing you wanted to hire was a marketing operation. What are your thoughts on, you know, just marketing landscape as general and how that is going to change? Um, and also... From a job perspective, like what kind of skills are you looking for now as a head of marketing?
1: One change that uh, I've been seeing over the past few years is uh, marketing operations is a marketing function that sort of finally uh, is has not only come into its own, but it's actually the most and probably the most in demand marketing role out there because there's so there's not that many people with that skill set. Uh, in terms of uh, being able to implement a complete MarTech stack and integrate it and set up the automations and uh, execute on campaigns and run campaigns, et cetera. Um, there's few of them, but every startup, every scale-up wants them, right? So it actually took me months to hire that marketing operations person, especially here, especially here in Australia, right? So here in Australia, uh, uh, with all due respect to Australia, the marketing landscape here is probably five years behind probably five years behind uh, what it is in the. US right so in the U.S., marketing op- marketing op- the marketing operations role has come into its own it's matured you have thousands of marketing operations uh, managers directors uh, at, at not only startups and scale-ups but also at companies like Amazon or Microsoft or Google right so it's become in the. US it's a it's, it's a it's recognized as an essential function on a marketing team right um uh here in australia uh not so much uh i had had a tough time finding a marketing operations person here they they're they're here they exist just
0: not just not enough of them what does the marketing operation person actually do because there's different skill set even within marketing ops stack in usa where you know you know there's a specialization that they have but from your perspective um for those ceos going oh i know I n- might need this marketing ops person. What is it that they would bring to their CMO so they could then, you know, support that decision and be more educated on it?
1: The number one thing they bring is a data-led approach. In order to make decisions, <laughs> you need data, right? So that's the number one thing they they bring is a, a data-led approach. Uh, two, uh, and then two, it's it's a technology-led approach. So in today's world. Uh, I would wager that the most successful marketing teams are data-led and technology-led. And that's what the marketing operations role brings you. Um, And also, the other key thing, I I would say the third thing, uh, and this is very important, is that if you start off with marketing operations, uh, a marketing operations discipline early on, uh, uh, that means that from the get-go, you'll have in place a really good attribution.
0: Yeah, fantastic.
1: Good attribution and also clean data, right? Um, sometimes um, or sometimes, organizations that that don't have marketing ops from the start, data gets very messy, then it becomes pretty much impossible to clean up.
0: One of the things I can say, reflect back and, and go, I think that we've done the wrong thing or other agencies probably do the wrong thing is when we get in with a customer, We say, okay, we're going to go do all this content-driven approach, but we don't actually go and look at them and say, no, we're not going to do anything for you because we're going to set up success measures and reporting measures on your dashboard first. And we're going to actually look at making sure attribution is there. So when you look at us for ROI, we can look at you and have the same measure with you on your dashboard. But instead what agency does and that's similar to I guess when you come into a role and it's like you have to quickly perform and show that I can do something is run along and do our ad management and keep everything in our ad management systems and within the platforms that we're working on rather than do the effort and delay the process of running any kind of content because the dashboards aren't set up you know and I think like as an agency we are changing our methods going, no, we will not work anymore. I guess as you get more confident and you get more clients and you get more successes, you can have the confidence to take your customer on a longer journey and say, you know, if you want to work with us, that's just how we work. But I guess a lot of people, they come in and they go, okay, I'm going to show you the results of an ad, but then everything's missed in your dashboard. So I think people need to go first on their dashboard and tell their customers set up your dashboards. And then let's, each measure each other on success of that rather than hey go over here and look at LinkedIn paid ads and we did this. Let's all just set up one metric. I think at the from the beginning and fix your dashboard or your CRM, whether you're in Salesforce HubSpot, set that up with your agency first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and um, where folks coming into a marketing leader role, I think should be keep uh, very top of mind is that. Um, as you work up in the marketing sort of and and, and as you go up the ladder of your marketing career from let's say a junior marketing manager up to a marketing leader um you have to recognize that what the people you report into um what they care about changes right so myself as a head of marketing when it comes to my um somebody that might report to me like let's say our marketing coordinator All I care about, and let's say she's working on on an event, I just care about how many people attended that event, what was the turnout like, yada, yada, yada. But uh, at the executive level, at the founder level, they don't care about that stuff. They want results. They want pipeline. There's really only two things they care about. One is, um, uh, and you'll see this over and over again, right? One is just you being able to, Uh, articulate the story and tell tell the story in in an interesting way. Um, Basically just spread the story. And two is generate pipeline, generate revenue. That's really all the founders or the CEOs or the other executives really care about um, and so, if you're hiring an agency to come in and do ads for you, and all they're showing you is, you know, how many people, how many, how many impressions that ad got, and how many clicks that ad that ad got, uh, sure, that uh, as, as a as a marketing leader, you, you understand, uh, you understand that result. You you understand that that will eventually lead to the pipeline. Uh, your founder and your your CEO is not going to see it that way, right? Uh, I, I actually recently set my, uh, some of my goals for the next quarter, um, using the OKR method and, um, uh, and I suggested a bunch of sort of, uh, objectives and I can tell you that the ones that were not very directly related to revenue, we have a scrap because uh, the feedback I got, this is great. This is good, but It doesn't, it, 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 from our perspective, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, uh, the ultimate result we're looking for is for marketing to drive revenue. Right.
0: So agencies are going to also have to come and the good agencies, I think are going to come to the table and say, we want to play the same with the same objective as you. We want to also be held responsible to an MQL. And we, if they are really good, they want to be involved up to SQL where they're going to actually go and be like, well, because a lot of people go, well, it's not my problem that your sales team don't know how to pitch the demo. Like I've driven new traffic now, it's your problem. But, you know, I think that's what differentiates us To When you start with an early on agency, I think, you know, there's agencies that are like, here's content and that's where we're going to go with you. And then there's next level of partners. They want to be in with you at meeting level. And then there's a next level of partnerships and they are willing to go with you on the distance of going, okay, how... Where is the blockage and they're building with you? So tell me then with that in mind, then if that's where, you know, that's happening and there's all these other marketing jobs where you just have content being produced or video editors only coming to your table. How do you see that, you know, given that's what, you know, I guess everyone wants from the market and the jobs segregation there is like, yo, Some agencies, they're just really good at writing copy. How do you see that then changing? Given, you know, your objective is I need to drive MQL, I need to drive SQL, I need to drive a revenue outcome. You want probably agency to be there with you. Do you see sort of, you know, some of those roles then maybe becoming automated or are you already kind of looking at, okay, how that's going to evolve those roles that are just so single-minded, where they just go I can drive events to it or I can write X for you and get X output, which has got nothing to do with what you want. Like, how do you see this all playing out in the longer term?
1: Yeah, I mean, the world, especially post-COVID, is becoming a more results-based world. The world wants results. Uh, they want uh, financial results, monetary results, right? So they, they um, I'm seeing a trend kind of bubbling up where, uh, companies hiring agencies are increasingly expecting results. Uh, but what's interesting is that on the agency side, I'm, lo- I'm noticing that more and more agencies are actually coming into the game, um, insisting on, insisting on, Driving uh, uh, actual results in terms of revenue. For example, Chris Walker, who you interviewed mm. uh, recently, uh, his agency is is very much like that. Yes. They they will they will only engage with the, with the client if if that client is very committed to um, to that goal uh, of 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 gen- generating real results in terms of revenue, and 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 understanding that that takes some time. Um, so, so it's interesting, companies are becoming more uh, results-oriented, but so are agencies. That's, mm. that's actually kind of interesting now that, I, now that I think about it.
0: What about content agencies? What about the people that have been traditionally good at copywriting or they're just a good video editing, you know? I know you've got your views on that because where are they going to play if their expertise is not potentially on revenue per se, but you know, they are able to, you know, generate copy, for example. Um, And you had your views on automation, particularly being Fathom and being able to predict, you know, the future of jobs. Um, Where do you see that?
1: There's always going to be a need for content. Right? Um, But um, I guess a couple of issues to unwind is one, do you want that content uh, content production uh, resources outsourced with an agency or do you want to bring those in-house? I would say if you have a very complex product, like we do at Fathom, you probably want those in-house. Um, because your, let's say, writers will need to be close to your product team and to the rest of your teams in order to have that intimacy with not only the product, but the culture, the organization, what's happening, the news. Um, so I would say if you have a very complex product, bring it in-house. Designers, I mean, designers, you don't really need to have in-house unless you have an in-house, let's say, product design team that already has a strong design uh, culture, like we do at Fathom, then then yes, it would make sense to have a, a, a designer in-house. Um, but so yeah, so I mean, so far, you've had two options, you either have it in-house, or you have it uh, outsourced to an agency there's now a third option mm-hmm. that, that you alluded to and that's AI
0: yeah
1: <laughs> right um, so it's very interesting it, it's very interesting when I when I worked at the marketing uh, technology agency uh, about a year ago I started experimenting with uh, AI generated copy uh, I tried it, and I was very, I was very excited to try it. But when I tried it, 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 total, it was total gibberish. It didn't make any sense. I'm like, this is completely useless. But I re, but starting, starting my new role at Fathom, I took a, another look at it a year later, and it's unbelievable. The 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 quality that I can write at is, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, I actually played a little bit of a prank on one of our subject matter experts here recently, where I had copy.ai. AI, and all, and by the way, all these. Um, all these uh, AI-powered uh, writing tools—they're uh, all powered by GPT-3, which is OpenAI's um, uh, 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 um, natural language processing AI. Um, so, the back end they are all—they're all working off the same sort of AI engine. But you know, the one—the one that I tried was CopyAI, right? So, a bit of a plug for them. Um, so, anyway, I had CopyAI write an article on strategic workforce planning, which is a pretty technical topic and it's not a very common topic and there's not a lot out there on that topic. And that's why we've hired a, uh, a subject matter expert in-house uh, for that field. Uh, and, so, uh, and so what copy.ai wrote, and by the way, this is in like under a minute, uh, sounded just like, sounded as good as our subject matter expert. And then what I did is I, 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 uh, I showed, I showed it to him. uh, actually I, I posted, I posted that on Slack. Um, sorry, no, first I showed it to him. I'm like, Hey, what do you think about this article? He's like, oh, yeah, it's really good. But you might just want to, you might just want to go and read some of the playbooks that I wrote, um, just to sharpen up a few things. Right. So he thought it was good. Uh, and he actually thought that I wrote it. Right. Um, then I showed it. Then I showed it to the rest of the organization in Slack and our I main Slack channel, and I said, "Hey, hi everyone, let's have a little fun. Let's have a little Friday fun. Uh, whoever can guess who wrote this article will get a prize." Mm. Right? People started throwing in their guesses. No one guessed that it was in the eye, <laughs> <laughs> and and and, and uh, some people guessed the obvious answer, which I'm like, it's too obvious. They, they guessed Dave Bros, who's our subject matter expert. They guessed. I'm like. I wouldn't ask you guys, I wouldn't give you guys a prize if it was that obvious, right? But what's funny is one of our, our VP of engineering, Blair, mm. he kind of caught onto it. So he has this program where he, he he feeds it the copy and it can pick up on whether it was written by an AI or something.
0: Wow. So one thing I wanted to discuss with you, and I was thinking about it when we initially had the conversation, don't you think if um, if Blair can figure it out, Google's going to figure it out really really quick soon as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Google will figure it out. Yeah,
0: yeah. What happened is, if you remember with the white hat, this white hat SEO and then this black hat, and if Google penalizes you for doing that in the future, going, no, you haven't done the effort, it can actually have a dramatic impact on your actual SEO performance because that's how they pulled out, you know, people that used to put words in their footers and, and all that. Is that what, you know, is Google going to go, no, I'm going to penalize anyone that has used AI because it's they've AI's gone and actually pulled it from the internet, right? So are they going to get smart, or is the AI going to get more smarter? What's your view? Or what's, you know, there's fear here as well from people going, "Hang on a minute, what if Google does figure it out and then they penalize those and my organic search goes down?"
1: Uh, well, one thing I know Google will clamp down on in the next couple of years is um, some companies. What they do is they. Uh, they just produce a mass amount of uh, a mass volume of let's say blogs, and they usually just hire sort of offshore writers who can do this at a very low cost uh, and they just publish them in the back end of the of the website it's It's still on the website.
0: yes, but it's not linked. yeah
1: Google uh, will be clamping down on that soon, uh, maybe in about two years. Um, as for AI generated articles, um I think that Uh, soon. Uh, I mean, I mean, you look at, you look at how much it has gotten better in just over a year, where a year ago I looked at it. I was like, this is absolute garbage and useless. Now I look at it and it's as good as our subject matter expert. Now imagine how good it's going to be a year from now. And as you know, technology improves exponentially. right? Right. So imagine two years from now, by the time Google starts clamping down on this. I don't think I don't think anybody will be able to pick up the difference between what an AI wrote or what or what or what uh, what a human wrote. I don't, I don't think people will be able to pick it up. In fact, um, OpenAI is soon releasing GPT four, which is the next version. Wow! Which will, be even, which will be way more advanced.
0: So, what's your view then on copywriters in the future? Will they have like what kind of jobs do you see them having, and how do you think they need to evolve? And this is by the way for everyone. This is what Fathom. Actually, does is it gives you exactly what we're about to talk about, right? So, what's the future for a copywriter, David?
1: Um, you would think that because you know all these dozens of AI-powered copywriting uh, uh, companies are popping up, you would think that that role would would sort of uh, uh, so so. i found that we have basically predictive models generated by our AI, ironically, um, that basically will predict will tell you 5, 10, up to 15 years from now how much of this role is going to be automated, how much of this is going to be augmented. Uh, what's interesting, if you look at writers, uh, they're actually one of the least uh, automated roles, even with AI-generated copywriting. The reason for that is that the, the AI still needs guidance. It needs someone who... Can tell it what to write, right? Can tell it what to write, and also kind of, kind of uh, edit it a bit. And um, what what you would use the AI for is to is to basically uh, get you volume, help you scale your writing function. Um, an analogous example I could share with you is. Um, uh, in the U.S., we're working with some hospitals, and over there, there's, there's a shortage of nurses, right? Um, and these hospitals, they, they can't hire more nurses because the demand for nurses is, is, is outpacing the supply. But what they're finding is that what, what, our, what, what we showed them through our analysis was that if they augment and, and automate some of these functions, they can basically turn one nurse into four nurses, Right, so you can turn one copywriter into four copywriters. Right, so what AI? I don't think it's going to replace your copywriters; rather, it's going to augment It Will allow them to produce instead of let's say five blog posts per week, fifty blog posts per week. Got it.
0: Um,
1: right, so I think it will it will augment it will augment um, their capacity. Um, but what's also interesting is I think it will also augment their their creativity because. Um, uh, I was playing around with copy Daria with with um, with a member of my team, my digital marketing manager, and uh, we we were just playing around with it for about an hour, just exploring different topics. And during that hour, we came up with some amazing copy uh, because uh, because instead of spending that hour actually writing, we spent that entire just coming up with the with the ideas and letting the AI write, do the writing, right? So it allows you to bring your ideas to life at a much rapid rate, right? So your content, uh, your copywriter, uh, or your content producer, or your content writer, or your uh, or similar role, uh, I think their role is gonna shift from uh, doing, sitting there four hours a day and writing to more coming up with ideas coming up with creative ideas, letting the AI do the grunt work uh, and then just sort of finessing what the AI writes, just feeding the AI good Mm -hmm. direction.
0: And how does it like um, how does the AI take tone and everything? Because another concern for AI was they're going to all sound the same, you know, and because they don't understand tone and company voice, which I know you're really passionate about. So,
1: so. Um, Yeah, and that's, that's one of the things that we had a lot of fun with uh, during that session that I talked about. Um, uh, so first of all, these uh, AIs can write in any, they have a pre-selected menu of about 20 different tones of voice that they could write in, right? Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Grammarly, where it will, it will give you a, it will tell you uh, sort of what the tone of voice is for whatever you write. Um, similarly, these copy.ai, for example, and others like Jarvis, et cetera, they, have, they usually have about at least 20 different tones of voice that you can choose from. But the interesting, and, and what we had a lot of fun with was you could actually create your own tone of voice. Um, and then it will, actually, it will actually come up with a tone of voice based off of its understanding of of that description. So for example, we had Dave Burroughs, our our, uh, strategic workforce planning subject matter expert doing a visit to the US to attend some events, do some meetings. So we sent out an email um, just letting our US customers know that, hey, Dave Burroughs is coming, Um, book a meeting with him if you like while he's there. Um and and we thought what tone of voice do we want this email to have? And what I told uh Zach, uh uh our digital marketing manager, I told him, you know what, think of it this way. Think of Dave Burroughs as like, because he's going all the way from Australia to the US. So I was like, I was like, what's what's something that's similar to that? And I thought, I thought to myself, well, it's kind of like a Dalai Lama or a Tibetan monk going from Tibet uh and going to the US on uh to speak at an event and meet people right so 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 he was like you know what let's try that <laughs> so, so he typed in tone of voice uh tibetan monk from the Him- tibetan monk from the himalayas guru visiting the u.s
0: wow
1: and it wrote they wrote the email that we were sending we were sending as the bros in that tone of voice wow it basically sounded like the dalai Lama. <laughs>
0: Then what about in the future of video editing? I know you were looking at that. Do you see that also being, you know, one that is ready to be impacted? Cause I know you were doing some research into that.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, prior to joining Fathom, uh, that thought never really occurred to me, but since joining Fathom and, you know, our, our core capabilities are basically data science and AI. That's where we're strongest at. Um, And so there's some really amazing AI engineers here, and just working with them and talking to them and picking their brain. I'm starting to see more and more how powerful AI actually is and what it can do. Um, and one one of the things about the application of AI is that you kind of use you kind of think of the building blocks because there's different there's different things that AI can do, and you can like combine them in different combinations, right? So so yeah, recently I thought to myself, wait a sec, there's there's software that can transcribe. Right, pretty effectively, like 99% accuracy. I'm like, there's GPT-3 that can actually understand what you write. So why isn't there a piece of software that can watch a video and you know transcribe it into text, understand what it is, and then pick out the best parts? There's right, like the pieces are there. You have GPT there and you have the transcription technology there. So if you combine those two tech, AI yeah, technologies, you should, you should theoretically, that software shouldn't be hard to build. Um, I searched, couldn't find anything. And so I actually thought for a few days, maybe I need to go build this.
0: <laughs>
1: um, uh, but I asked, uh, my network for some recommendations and I actually, uh, surprisingly, I found a few. So I found a few that, that have already started doing this. One of them is called Parmonic. And uh, and it's completely oh. AI powered. It's incredible, and there are serious companies already using them. So if you go on their website, Google oh. uh, Parmonic, go on their website, you'll see their logos, customer logos, and there's some pretty big names on there.
0: Is that Parno? What was that Parnomics? Is that able to? Is that able to do video edit on sections? Because we were talking about the future of video editors and whether you see them being really impacted as well like copywriters because one of the most expensive part of marketing remains video right and 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 being able to send out a video production team who goes and does your video and they have expensive cameras as you know that they have um they have to take out with you and then yes there's some you know types of videos that can be done online but there's nothing like panoramic video when someone's at your site so And everyone wants more and more video content with TikTok now coming in form and shaping the next, I think, you know, generation and people moving into that from Instagram. So video has got this demand, but it is not cheap, right, to do video production still. So what kind of, you know, um, what's the future of video jobs and video editing jobs and video production jobs? So more video editing jobs, which, um, yeah, it just takes time for these video editors.
1: Yeah, with video editing, to be honest with you, like if you ask me that question two months from now, I would say video editors, don't worry, uh, there's there's no AI that can replace what you're doing. But based on what I just, based on based on uh, my latest learning of my latest understanding of AI and these products that I've seen, like Parmonic and Milk Video, which we're actually trying out right now. So yeah. once we finish the, trying them out, I can let you know which one which I can recommend one to you. But based on what I'm seeing, I don't really see – so I, I have a video editor, and and based on what I'm seeing right now, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to have any work for this guy yeah. pretty soon. Yeah. If, if these actually work as well as they say they work, yeah. I won't have any work for him. Because not, not only can they edit uh, create clips for you uh, based on – uh based on transcribing in the back end and understanding what the text is not only can they can they create the clips for you they can also they can also add the the uh the let's say the intro screen outro screen visual effects calls to action CTAs. they can do all that automatically as well well wow. so if you can, if it, if it can create clips if it can clean up the video if they can add design to it what else is there for, for the video editors to do? Yeah,
0: that's what I'm curious to learn about that because I, I wonder how much of it will be augmented versus, you know, replaced. Like you said, with copywriters, you still saw that it's still augmented role um, because there's still things left to do.
1: Yeah, because copy, copywriters, they involve creativity. They involve, they involve a bit of human ingenuity, right? Um, video editing, it's... When you really think about it, video editing is a very mechanical kind of, kind of job, like it's very, it's very, um, uh, how the difference then it's not that different than, than, I don't know, working at a factory assembly line. Right. Like that's a very,
0: automated. I guess it depends on the video, like how they're going to tell the story at to what production level it is at, you know, like a advertising video, obviously that will require huge amounts of capability of two. And then there's the webinar videos like this, like we've just done a video now, What sections are pulled out. It's just It's not dynamic. It's just you and me staring at a screen. So that video, I think automation will come first. Right. But a full, you know, ad production that probably needs a really quality person putting together the concept. Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: So I was, I was more referring to sort of post production. Yeah post-production of of your common video content like this webinar or this podcast or whatever. But certainly when it comes to actual production and ideation, yeah, that's not going to be automated anytime soon.
0: Yeah. But yeah, webinars, podcast, just getting snips out of that, it sounds like that's all on its way. Um, So thank you, David. I've got one final um, question for you. I guess. Um, and then I'll leave you with it. So you've picked up LinkedIn, you've chosen to run with that. And, you know, my last person that was on here was talking about YouTube, and there's this huge fascination for TikTok. I'd love to get your view on, as a CMO of a B2B SaaS company, do you see a serious play? Uh, in TikTok in the very near future.
1: Yeah, good question. Um, well, one sort of play TikTok play that I see immediately is, um, so our audience, our target audience is currently not on TikTok, right? Uh, our target audience at a at, a, at, a, at your B two B company is simply going to be somebody in their late forties, right? It's going to be the, the buyer is going to be in their late forties, a senior decision maker with buying power at a at a at a big enterprise company, those people are not on TikTok, right? Um, Not yet, at least. But even though they're not on the platform, what you can do with TikTok right now is you can get inspiration from TikTok, right? So so, there's so much creativity and ingenuity when it comes to video content that happens on TikTok. So what you can do as a marketer is you can go on TikTok uh, just uh, as a sort of a side hobby, as a side interest use tiktok get good at tiktok create tiktok content Um, and what will happen is you will learn some really cool tactics some really cool uh, creative ideas that you can then translate to whatever platform your audience is on let's say youtube or linkedin so that's that's the TikTok play that 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 I think marketers can tap into right now. You go on, you go on TikTok. There's a ton of ingenuity uh, and creativity and ideas that you can tap into.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing so much depth, so much innovation and knowledge with us um, over there. And I really enjoyed learning, particularly about our conversation on AI and its impacts and how you see that. I can see you hold some really really key information for us um, marketers and, you know, mentioned some really yeah. cool tech there that I'm sure people will be going and Googling. So thank you for your time and knowledge.
1: My pleasure, Melanie. Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to Innovative Minds. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind.